All right, let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we're going to begin now. I'm, I'm, I'll, we're we're going to go slow through this, which means that today we're not going to get really very far. And the reason I want to do this is because we're getting into some really, um, well, I can't say the chapters we're getting to are more important because they're not more important. But we're getting into some chapters when we get into chapter 11, chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14, where Paul is dealing in quite a lot of detail about uh, issues that are very relevant for us today in the church. Everything in the Bible is relevant for us today. Um, but in particular, these are things um, that oftentimes are points of controversy. And sometimes that we just say, well, you know, really, that doesn't matter. And it's dangerous when we say those things because everything in the scripture matters because if it didn't matter, God would not have put it in there. I really believe that. And so everything that God has chosen to record in the scripture, you guys do understand that your Bibles don't represent the only thing God has to say. It does represent what God has chosen to say and to preserve for us to instruct us. And so to say that since the creation of the world, God has, you know, the Bible says, John says that if we recorded everything that Jesus did, we, books couldn't contain it. So what I'm saying is we have just a, if we can use this term, just a thumbnail sketch of what God has chosen to reveal to us in his word. And so I believe that God has put everything that he's put in there for a reason, and it's important for us. Amen? And so we're going to go slow and as we talk about these things. And so let's just begin today, and uh, let's go back to verse 1 of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I'm going to read the first 16 verses, though we're not going to get anywhere close to 16 verses today. I want to read the first 16 verses so we kind of have a context of what we're going to be talking about, all right? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, follow along with me. Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, dishonors her head, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to shorn or shave, to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman is from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels." Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. 
For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman. But all things are from God. Judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. Okay, so we're going to begin here today, and we're going to begin in verse 1, and uh, we're going to cover at least three verses today, okay? <laughs> so um, I really want to take, uh, I want to re- really be thoughtful about this as we go through here and teach this, and so, um, and so that's why I don't, I don't want to rush through any of this. All right, so verse 1, we, we touched on this last week. Paul writes, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. And so I want to reiterate here that imitation of Christ is possible only through impartation. So imitate me is Paul's call to personally manifest the life of Christ that has come to us by an impartation of Christ in the Spirit. So God desires impartation, not just mere imitation. So the impartation of Christ in the Spirit is far more than a a mere imitation of Christ in the flesh. And the difference between impartation and imitation is the difference between acting and being. So last Thursday was Halloween. Now, I don't know, but from what I saw, there were a lot of people walking around in costumes acting like they were something that they truly weren't. They were imitating all kinds of things that they were not truly, that, that, that was not truly who they were. So we're not to just act like someone that we are truly not. Impartation means that we have become. It goes to the very depth of our being. When we are born again and God imparts Christ to us by the Spirit, we are changed at the very core of our being. The Bible says we become new creations. We're not just wearing a costume or a mask or a facade pretending to be something that we're not. The word imitation in our culture carries that connotation. The word imitation speaks of acting like, pretending to be something that we are truly not. This is not what Paul is telling us to do. He is telling us, when he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, he is telling us to be who you have become through the new birth, through the impartation of Christ in the Spirit. Be a follower of a Christ. Be the new creation. Be the light that you are in the Lord. Ephesians 5.8 says, You are now light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. You once were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. You're not darkness pretending to be light. You 
are light. That's who you have become. Therefore, walk as children of light. So the impartation of Christ in the Spirit is given to bring about a manifestation of His life in us, just like the seed is planted into the ground to bring about a manifestation of the plant that the seed is. We're not trying to increase the dirt. We're trying to bring an increase of the seed. Paul says a seed has been planted in you. It is Christ. Let Christ come forth. Let there be an increase of Christ. So this is the impartation and the manifestation of his life in us. That the glory of the image of God who is Christ would fill the earth or as Paul writes in his letter to the Ephesians, would fill all in all. Amen? So the imitation of Christ is possible only through impartation. That is a work of the Spirit of God. Pray, seek, desire that a work of the Spirit of God would take place in you. Not a one-time work, but a continuous, powerful, ongoing work that is causing you to continuously be conformed to the image of the Son of God. Amen? Verse 2. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. This is very important. Paul is... It's easy to miss this. But this is really important. Paul is praising them and exhorting them at the same time to keep the traditions. It's almost like, I'm just going to assume, guys, that you're keeping the tradition, that you're doing the right things in the right way according to the truth. I praise you for that, and I want to encourage you to keep doing that, to keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Keep the traditions This is an exhortation for the corporate body. If imitate me as I imitate Jesus is an exhortation to each individual person. Keep the traditions is an exhortation to the corporate body. He's telling the body, the brethren, keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. It's an exhortation for the corporate body of believers to continue steadfastly in the things they have been taught in their personal lives, and in their public gatherings together. So, who we are here in this public gathering should also be who we are in our personal lives. Who we are in our personal lives should be who we are in our public gatherings. If you come to the public gathering wearing your costume, it doesn't do you much good. If that's not who you really are. And this is where we need to cry out in desperation for a work of the Spirit of God in our hearts to change us, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. Keep the traditions in all things and at all times keeping Christ and the gospel central. So when we come here in this public gathering, in this corporate gathering place, we keep Christ and the gospel central. When you live your lives at home, alone, or with those around you, 
Keep Christ in the gospel central. In your work, keep Christ in the gospel central. When you play, keep Christ in the gospel central. And whatever you do, this is Paul's point when he says, in all things, do all things to the glory of God. How do we glorify God? We glorify God when we keep Christ and the gospel central in all things. God doesn't want to just be glorified for a couple of hours on a Sunday morning. And we call it good. And then we just go do what we want to do. And we feel like we've done our penance and we've paid our, our dues to God until next week. No. We are. See, that's the imitation. That's the facade. But if we are truly children of God, if we've been truly changed and transformed from the inside out, then we can't be something on Sunday morning that we're not on Monday morning. We can't be something on Monday morning that we're not on Sunday morning. Now, we're like the little children, right? We're like the little child who's learning to walk. We're not real proficient maybe at it yet, but we're going to get there, right? We're going to learn to walk. We're like the child learning to use eating utensils. I might make a mess. I'm not real proficient at it, but I'm going to keep practicing, and my good father is going to help me, and in time, I'm going to get better at eating my macaroni and cheese without getting it all over me and the floor and everywhere else. In time, I'm going to get better at walking to the point where I'll learn how to run without falling down. So I'm not saying we live the Christian life and we make no mistakes, we never fall, we never fail. I'm saying if we truly are children of God, then we're going to learn how to eat with our forks and spoons and we're going to learn how to walk and we're going to learn how to run and we're going to get better and better and better at it. It doesn't make us, it doesn't mean if I can walk better today than I could last week, I'm a better human being or I'm more of a human being. See, it's a kind of our mentality with Christianity, right? Well, if I can, if I can act like Jesus better today than I could a month or a year ago, that means I'm a better Christian today than I was. No. Or I'm more of a Christian today than I was. No. Just because. I see my daughter-in-law there resting her hand on my grandson. Now, just because she's much more pregnant now, almost nine months later than conception, it doesn't mean she's more pregnant now. It just means the baby has matured to a certain point. She's, she's no more pregnant today than she was nine months ago or eight months ago, right? You're no more a Christian just because you... You kind of got it down and, and, and you can behave and you can walk the walk and talk the talk. It doesn't make you more of a Christian. It may indicate that you're more mature and you're more fruitful. There's a greater measure of Christ in you that's being manifest through you. That's a good thing. Doesn't make you more saved than you were before. Doesn't make God love you more than he loved you before. Because there wasn't anything you did to make God love you to begin with, right? Where were you when God loved you? The Bible says you are his enemy. So you aren't trying real hard to do great things for God, going, okay, God, will you love me now? Look how hard I'm trying for you. No. The Bible says while we were dead in our sin, in the absolute, ultimate, total, total enemy of God, Christ died for us. And so 
Keep the traditions. These are the things that we do, keeping Christ and the gospel central. So what were they to do? They were to continue in the apostles' doctrine, which is what? Which is the doctrine of Christ as revealed to us in the scripture and manifest to us in the life of Christ. They were to continue in the ordinances of the church, namely baptism and the Lord's Supper. There's a reason why we come to this table every week. This is what the early church did. They came to the table every week. They remembered Christ's death every week. They proclaimed his death every week. They proclaimed his coming every week. They proclaimed his redemption. They proclaimed his life. They proclaimed his death, his burial, his resurrection. They proclaimed the salvation and the hope and the promise we have in Christ every time they came to the table. It reminded them not only of what Christ has done, but it reminds them and it reminds us of who we are as the body of Christ. When We'll get to this later on in this chapter where, where Paul talks about looking around at the body as we come to the, to the Lord's table. And we see the diversity and we see the reality that, that we are all sinners saved by grace. That none of us deserved what we truly deserved. But the grace and the mercy of God gave to us what we did not deserve. And we look around and we see many members. But the table declares to us there is only one body. There is only one life. So they were to continue in these ordinances. They were to continue in fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayer. This is recorded in Acts 2.42. It says they continued steadfastly in the, in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayer. This is what the church did. And they were to continue in divine order in all things. And, and so giving a powerful witness... To the world around them and glorifying God. 2 Thessalonians 2.15, Paul writes, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now we have all of that now recorded here. Paul is long gone. He's in heaven. He was beheaded in Rome. Somewhere in the mid to late 60s. Not 1960, but 60 AD. About 68, 67, 68 AD. And so we have his words. We have his letters. We have the teachings of Christ. We have the gospels of Christ recorded for us. We have the Old Testament scriptures recorded for us. This is our pattern. This is our this is our foundation. This is how we keep the traditions. How do we know if the tradition we have is correct or not? We go to this and it tells us if our traditions are correct or not. And so these traditions are the lifestyle and the conduct of the believers along with the instructions concerning the church and worship and work of ministry that every believer is called to live out as a witness to earth and to heaven. As a witness to men and to angels and demons. 
Do you ever think about that? That's scriptural. Ephesians 3, it's been given to the church to make known, to declare the manifold wisdom to God, to powers and to principalities. Right now, we are giving witness to powers and principalities, to angels and to demons. We're giving witness to God and to Christ right now. You can't see them. You can't touch them. You can't hear them. But you're giving witness to them by the very fact that you're here. We're giving witness to them by the traditions that we keep, by the word that we declare, by the gospel that we preach, by the lives that we live. If you don't think your life is a witness, you're mistaken. Your life is a witness all the time. It never ceases to be a witness to someone or to something. These traditions are to be a powerful witness to all of Christ and his church. Amen? Now let's move to verse 3. And let's talk about divine order and the glory of God. Now from here on out, here's where we're going to kind of go through, starting in verse 3, and we're going to go, go all the way down through verse 16. <clears throat> But we're not going to do that today, so I'm going to give you kind of an introduction here and talk a little bit about divine order and the glory of God. So as we go through verse 3 through 16, I want you to keep in mind Paul's admonition back in the 10th chapter. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 31. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Paul says, what, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So if that should apply to eating and drinking, we're going to eat and drink after this service. We're going to have a great meal together. So when we are having our meal together, Paul says, as we're eating and drinking, we should eat and drink to the glory of God. That's the Bible. Now, if we're going to eat and drink to the glory of God, I think it stands to reason that when we come into this room to worship him, if we're going to eat and drink to the glory of God, how much more should our acts of worship and adoration of God, lifting our songs and the preaching of the word and coming to the table and, and how we interact with one another and how we consider one another, how much more should that be to the glory of God? So keep this in mind, church, that whatever we do, we are to do it to the glory of God. Let me give you a quote from a, it's a book I have called Hard Sayings of the Bible. We're going to deal, as we go through these verses, with some hard sayings, some controversial sayings. Now, it might not be real controversial for the men. These, some of these sayings are going to be more controversial for the women. And as we get there, you'll... You'll see, for instance, you know, like this verse uh, that says, um, woman is the, is the glory of man. Now, you ladies might not have a problem with that. There's some, there's some women who kind of have a problem with what that could imply. And they don't like that. And if we don't rightly divide the word of truth, and we don't understand what Paul is saying here, it is very possible that 
that people, though they might have good intentions, could take some of these scriptures and misapply them, misappropriate them. And there might be reasons why women have a right to be a little leery of some of these verses because maybe they haven't been applied correctly, kind of like the verse, you know, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. You know, that's another one that women kind of, I always see women do premarital counseling in I'm telling you, nine times out of ten, it's like uh, I literally can see the girl cringe when, when I talk about this. But there should be no cringing. There should be no fear. If we understand what God has divinely ordered and what he's instructing us and why he's instructing us. Now, as I read these verses, Paul is talking about Something that seems totally irrelevant for us today. This idea of whether our head is covered or not. Do I wear a hat? Do I not wear a hat? You ladies might be wondering right now, Pastor, are you saying that all of us women should have hats on right now? I mean, Spencer's the only one that has a hat on right now. And, oh, Mr. Keene, and, and according to the scripture here, they're both out of order, right? So they got hats on in the building here. I mean, what do we, what, what do, we do with this? How do, we, how do we understand these verses? So this is, this is what we're going to do in, in as much detail as I can. We're going we're gonna to really do the bulk of this work. The heavy lifting is really going to be next Sunday. But let me give you a quote because a lot of these things are specific. So now remember, Paul is writing a letter to a specific church in a specific city. And this church has written to Paul, and they have asked him some specific questions. And Paul is addressing their specific questions and their specific issues. Now, while we're talking about all these specifics, lest you think, well, it doesn't apply because we're not in Corinth and we're not living 2,000 years ago, so this is all irrelevant to us. No, it's not actually. There may be some specifics that are irrelevant to us, but the principle behind what Paul is saying is absolutely relevant. And what we shouldn't do is get hung up on whether women should wear hats or not. What we need to do is understand the principle Paul is talking about here and the overriding truth that, that is, has absolute relevance for us today. It remains relevant. Though some of the cultural norms may have changed, what Paul is really saying here is absolutely relevant for us today. I found this to be a helpful quote from this book that I have. And I just thought, well, you know, I'll just, I'll just give you the quote because I thought it was pretty good. In light of Paul's principle for Christian life that, that we see in, in chapter 10 and verses 32 and 33, this, it really in this letter we see this principle to act in ways that lead to the good, to the salvation of, of as many as possible. He is concerned that Christians maintain the kind of public worship which does not bring disgrace through unacceptable shameful practices. The church was God's alternative to broken Corinthian society. So Paul understood there's a picture that's being presented here. I've got the picture of Corinth, which is totally and completely broken. 
And I've got the picture of the church which should stand in stark contrast to the brokenness of Corinth. We should be able to see the church in the contrast between the, the, the city's brokenness and the church's redemption and the glory of God that should be present in the church who is God's people, right? And so, Paul, the church was God's alternative to broken Corinthian society. It is flouting of contemporary cultural conventions. It's flouting of contemporary cultural conventions could bring social criticism and hinder the gospel. So women praying and prophesying in the church with their head uncovered, though today we'd say, what is the big deal? In Corinth, it was a big deal. So Paul's not so much caught up with whether women should always have their head covered, and we're going to get into the detail of this. He's more concerned about what is the witness that the church is giving to the world. And we can think of some practical examples of this. I mean, you realize that if I was preaching in Paul's day, I wouldn't be wearing what I'm wearing, right? I'd have what would be more akin to a muumuu on, you know. I'd have a I'd have a robe or this like a dress on, kind of. But but even though you today, if I walked around in that. People would think, what's he doing wearing women's clothes? It, you know, if I dressed the way they dressed 2,000 years ago, I wouldn't be wearing women's clothes. So even 2,000 years ago, though men and women, they didn't have pants like we have them, per se. They didn't always... There was still a distinction between the way women dressed and men dressed. You could look and you knew whether a man was wearing men's clothing or he was wearing women's clothing. Not because one guy had Levi's on and the, and the woman had a dress on. We can do the same today, right? We know there's women's clothes and men's clothes. When, if, if a guy comes into church... And he's got... Makeup, and he's wearing women's clothes, right down to the high heels. And, and for all practical purposes, he looks like a woman, except you know he's a man. You, now, not everybody, because we're living in a time the cultural norm is changing. In some places, I'm telling you, that is absolutely acceptable. Now, if it was Halloween, we might not think a big thing about it, right? Maybe we would, maybe we wouldn't say, oh, well, it's just his costume for Halloween. But I'm not talking Halloween, I'm just, I'm just talking about an everyday normal Sunday. There was a time when we would say that is against the cultural norm, and if if half the men in church wore dresses and carried purses and had eyeliner and, and, and had wigs and dressed like women and put tissue here because they hadn't had their surgery yet, 
so they could, you know, we would say that, that that's, that's against the cultural norm. It would be, it would be disruptive and we would say, mm, no. It's kind of, not exactly, but I, I want you to kind of, I want to paint kind of an extreme picture of what kind of was happening in the Corinthian church. Paul was like, mm-mm. There are certain cultural norms that if we violate these, if we, if we say this is okay and we can do these things, we're, we're ruining our witness. We're, we're hindering the gospel from going forth. Okay? So I'm not going to get into that. We're going to talk more in detail about that. But, but let's talk about divine order and the glory of God. Verse 3. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man and the head of Christ is the church. Now this word head, it's very possible that you think headship when you hear the word head. And headship, if I say the word headship, you automatically think of rule or authority. The husband has headship over the woman. He's got rule and authority over his wife. That's kind of the, the context that we think about. This word head has three meanings in scripture. It's a Greek word. K-E-P-H-A-L-E. And it has three meanings. It can mean a physical head like this. This head. Kafale. Head. Right here. Or it can mean source or origin. We see that in Colossians 1.18. We see a physical head right here in, in verse 7 where Paul says, For a man indeed ought not to cover his head. He's, he's, he's meaning this. Okay? And then a third way that this word is used, though much, much more rarely, is... To mean a person with authority. We see this in Ephesians 1.22 where it talks about Christ being the head of the church. Now when we read the Bible, we need to ask ourselves, how did the people in Paul's day, when they heard Paul, or when they read this letter, when they heard this letter read, how did they hear, what did they hear? So when I say head, if I said, tell me what you think of, I said head, I mean... 99.9% of the people are going to tell me I thought, I thought of a head like this. But that's not always the way that we can use this word. And so how did, how did these Corinthians hear this word? The word head is not headship as in ruling over or one with authority over as we would commonly understand it in our culture today. So when Paul says in verse 3... I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. He's not saying Christ is literally my head. Skull, bone. No. It, he could be saying, and, and it is true, Christ is my authority. No doubt about that. But he also can be saying Christ is my source and my origin. That's an easy one. Alright. And the head of woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. So let's take the physical head out of here. And let's say it's going to be one of these other two definitions. Source or origin or rule or authority. And they're both applied to this scripture. But, but 
When we go through and we begin to read all of this and we take everything in context, we need to figure out exactly what Paul is communicating here and how those Corinthians understood this. I'm not a Bible scholar. I don't read Greek. But in all my reading and studying of this, it seems that the most reasonable way to understand this is that head in this verse as understood by the Corinthians in Paul's day would carry a meaning that conveys the source or the origin of something. Let me give you a quote from the 4th century of, of, a, of an important person, leader in the church named Cyril of Alexandria. In commenting on this text, here's what he says. Thus we say that the kaphale, or the source of every man, is Christ because he was excellently made through him. And the kaphale, or the head, or the source of woman, is man because she was taken from his flesh. Likewise, the kaphale, or the source of Christ, is God because he is from God according to nature. This is why we say Jesus was human, but he was not just human. He was absolutely divine. So you might about right now be asking the question, why on earth, Pastor Jeff, is this important? Well, it's important because the glory of God is important. Because what we're really talking about here is the divine order and glory of God. And Paul's little statement right here in verse 3 is going to have great impact when we get to chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. And he makes the statement, let the women remain silent in church. If we don't understand what Paul is communicating in chapter 11, we're going to misappropriate chapter 14 and we're going to tell all the women to keep their mouth shut in church and stay in your place, woman. Which, which is what? Men have done. Now, the Bible encourages us to rightly divide the word of truth, okay? So this is very important, and it's important chiefly because the glory of God is important. So the divine order of things is important not only because that is how God chose to order his creation. It is true Man is the source of woman. There's a reason why God did not create Eve from the dirt. She created, he created Eve from the rib of man. Man is the source of woman. But we're going to see Paul balances this out. I'll just take you there right now. Look at verse... Look at verse 11. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman. Every one of you men was born of a woman. Your mama. But that fact that every man comes from woman does not discount or negate the original order at creation that woman came from man. 
So this is important for us, and this is why I'm, I'm going to go slow through this. Because you men and you women, we all need to get this and understand what, what the Scripture is teaching us and why it's teaching us. And this is why it's important. Because not only is that how God chose to order his creation, but even more important is the fact that the divine order of things speaks of the very nature and character of God. It speaks of his very being. It speaks of his glory. There's a reason why God has done everything. So we can't confuse accepted cultural norms with clearly defined sin. Are you tracking with me? When clearly defined sin becomes acceptable in the culture, it cannot be acceptable in the church. There is nothing unacceptable about the fact that every woman in here does not have a veil or a hat on her head. I feel confident in saying, women, you are not in sin because you don't have a veil covering your head right now. But that was not always true because in Corinth there was a reason why a woman coming into the church without a head covering on and it's not just about a head covering, it's what that covering represented and why it was important for her to have that symbol of authority if she wanted to get up and pray and prophesy in the church. So I can honestly say, you, you ladies are safe today. I believe that. Now, some, some men may disagree with me. There's still churches where women all wear hats and veils. Okay? But we need to understand why it's okay for you to come in here without a hat on. But there are other things that are also culturally acceptable today. And the church is saying, it's okay. It's culturally acceptable. We all know we're living in the 21st century. This is okay. It's not a sin anymore. No. Because what the Bible clearly defines as sin, I don't care how culturally acceptable it becomes, it's still sin. And just because the culture accepts it doesn't mean the church must accept it. Okay? Do you all understand the distinction there? So we can't confuse accepted cultural norms with clearly defined sin. Women in pants or short hair are not the same today as, sexually immor as sexual immorality or other sinful lifestyles or behaviors. Cultural norms are not inherently sinful, but flaunting them may be. The Corinthians were guilty of both. It was the Corinthians flaunting their newfound liberty in Christ at the expense of their witness that became sinful and not glorifying to God. It tore down instead of building up. So here's where we need to allow God's word to shape our mind. We don't take our will, our desires for things to be acceptable and shape the word of God and make the word of God say what we want it to say. We allow the word of God to shape our minds. Are you willing to allow the word of God to shape your mind? You have to be willing to do that. You need to be willing to do that. Even pastors need to be willing for the scripture to shape their mind concerning all things. That means scripture, not our mind, determines the mold that we are shaped by. 
For many years I believed certain things because I thought I was supposed to believe them. I read the scripture and had the habit of using the scripture to confirm my beliefs. But I never made it a habit to use the scripture to challenge my beliefs. We are all guilty of that. We are all guilty in some form or fashion of using the scripture to confirm our beliefs. And that's fine, but not at the expense of allowing the scripture to challenge our belief. And when the scripture challenges our belief and we come to realize that our belief is not really scriptural, guess what? We need to allow the scripture to shape our mind. Jeremiah 23, 29, it's not my word like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. Now, I believe that applies to the cold, hard heart of the unredeemed. At some point in time, God took the hammer of his word and he broke the rock hard, stony heart that was in me. But that hammer doesn't stop just when we're born again. We need to allow the hammer of his word to continue breaking the hard places in us. Do you understand what I'm saying, church? That's why we need to see our gatherings on Sunday morning more than just a nice social time to come and sing some nice songs and get a feel-good message and be entertained and then go out and do whatever. And then come back and do it again a week later. Are we serious about what we're called to? It's an important question. We must desire Christ and his word to shape our mind and our very being. In all things, so that we can truly begin to comprehend what it means to live and move and have our being in Christ. But here's a warning a quest for the truth is not an easy track. I'm going to warn you. If you begin, and I would challenge you to do this, I would challenge you to begin to read the Bible and challenge, to allow the Bible to challenge what you believe. Don't be afraid of that. Don't believe things just because I tell you to believe them. You believe things because this word instructs you, teaches you, and shows you and reveals to you the truth. You believe the truth. If I speak the truth, then believe the truth. If I speak a lie, don't believe the lie. Believe the truth. And this is what we all have to ultimately go back to is this word right here. It's not your goosebumps. It's not your feelings. Well, I just know, Pastor Jeff, I can't tell you how many people I've had. I just know. I just feel it. I know it's true. There's an old saying, lost is a goose in a hailstorm. That's about, I mean, I've known some people like that. I don't really care what the Bible says. I just know what I feel. You better care about what the Bible says, even if it kills your feeling that you love so much. Because 
Your quest for the truth will lead you to a place in Christ in a joy that's unspeakable and full of glory. I really believe that. Listen, God in His sovereignty has placed us in a spiritual battle. The battle assaults us in the spirit and in the flesh in this temporal realm. The choices we make and the actions we take are real with real consequences. You should have figured that out by now. For good and for evil, for life and for death. But here's what you need to understand. God did not create a devil and he did not create a human race to then lose control over them. Nor did he disallow them to make choices within his sovereignty. He governs all, even our choices. And this is the hope and the promise that Romans 8.28 gives us. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. If we don't have a God governing our choices, then, then that should not be in the Bible. But it is in the Bible. And it tells me that I have a, a good God who knows how to take even rotten choices and work them for his good and his glory. He truly works all things together for good, even when we cannot see it or feel it. But we are commanded to trust it because he has declared it. Are you with me, church? Everything in the created order works to this one end, and that is his glory. We have been created and privileged to be a part, a character, if you will, in his story. So to paraphrase kind of what the, Paul, what the Apostle Paul says in some of his letters, he says, fight like a brave soldier, like a true warrior. Run your race like the greatest runner. Live your part to the fullest and don't hold back. Live your life for his glory. And find in him your deepest joy. That's his joy. We all have a decision to make when it comes to this. My prayer is that you will choose wisely how you fight your fight and how you run your race and how you live your life. Because I promise your choices will have consequences. Even though there is a God who governs all and even though he's given you the promise that he knows how to work all things together for good to those who love him, my question is if you love him, then do the right and the wise thing. If you love him, go after this truth and let it change you and let it transform you. Don't trust your feelings. Trust his word at the expense of your feelings. Amen? Now we're going to dig into some deep things next week and talk about um, some, some important issues. We're going to talk a lot about men and women. 
in the next two or three weeks to come. But the overriding theme of all of this is the glory of God. God has ordered things in certain ways and he's ordered them for his glory. And we'll either kick against that or we will submit to that. And if we'll trust him and submit to his will and to his truth, I promise you, you will experience the fullness of his joy. Amen? Let's all stand. Let's... As we get ready to go next door, you're all invited to, to eat with us today. And I'm just going to pray a prayer over the food right now as we get ready to go. And if you're here and you want prayer for anything, maybe you're struggling with some of the things that we've touched on today and you want to talk about that, you want to pray about that, come and let's pray. Maybe you want to talk about surrendering to the Lord. Let's, let's talk about that and pray about that. If that's where your heart is. Father in heaven, we just thank you for your word. Lord, as we get ready to go next door and, and eat physical food, we thank you, Lord, for all the hands that prepared it. We thank you for providing all the good things that we're going to partake of today. Lord, let it be nourishing to our bodies. We thank you, Lord, for providing every good and perfect gift down to the food we eat. Father, I pray that you would help us as your people to not take life for granted, to not minimize, Lord, things that are so vitally and eternally important. Lord, help us to be people that know how to experience your joy and to have fun but also help us to be people that understand the gravity of the life we live and what we've been called to as children of God. The gift of the gospel that's been entrusted to us to live and to proclaim and to make known to those around us that they too could come to eternal life in Christ. Help us, God, to live our lives with our eyes wide open and help us to live it to the full. That we would not, at the end of our days, look back with regret. But we would look forward with joy because of your grace, because of your promise. Father, bless your people. Do a work in us by your spirit that only you can do. Challenge us, God. Don't let us be comfortable. Challenge us to be changed and transformed. Conformed to the very image of the Son. Do it, God, for your glory. Do it that we would be a witness to you in the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. If you want prayer, want to talk about anything, please come and let's do that. Otherwise, go next door, get a seat, and let's uh, have a great lunch together and break bread and fellowship. Bless you.